Chapter Three of the Four Pools Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Four Pools Mystery by Jean Webster. Chapter Three. I make the acquaintance of the hand. We had a sensation at supper that night, and I commenced to realize that I was a good many miles from New York. In response to the invitation of Solomon, the old Negro butler, we seated ourselves at the table and commenced on the cold dishes before us, while he withdrew to bring in the hot things from the kitchen. As is often the case in southern plantation houses, the kitchen was under a separate roof from the main house, and connected with it by a long open gallery. We waited some time, but no supper arrived. The colonel, becoming impatient, was on the point of going to look for it, when the door burst open and Solomon appeared empty-handed, every hair on his woolly head pointing in a different direction. De hant, Mask Colonel. De hant. He spirited off de chicken, right out of de oven from under Nancy's eyes. Solomon, said the colonel severely, what are you trying to say? Talk sense. Shows your bond, Mask Colonel. It's the living truth, I's tellin' ya. Dad had has watched dat chicken right out of de oven, and it's vanished in de air. You go out and bring that chicken in, and don't let me hear another word. I can't, Mask Colonel. Dent, I can't. There ain't no chicken there. Very well, then. Go and get us some ham and eggs, and stop this fuss. Solomon withdrew, and we three looked at each other. Rad, what's the meaning of this? The Colonel demanded curiously. Some foolishness on the part of the niggers. I'll look into it after supper. When the hat begins abstracting chickens from the oven, I think it's time to investigate. Being naturally curious over the matter, I commenced asking questions about the history and prior appearances of the hat. Radnor answered readily enough, but I noticed that the colonel appeared restless under the inquiry, and the amused suspicion crossed my mind that he did not entirely discredit the story. When a man has been born and brought up among Negroes, he comes, in spite of himself, to be tinged with their ideas. Supper finished, the three of us turned down the gallery toward the kitchen. As we approached the door, we heard a murmur of voices, one rising every now and then in a shrill wail, which furnished a sort of chorus. Radnor whispered in my ear that he reckoned Nancy had got em again, though I did not comprehend at the moment. I subsequently learned that um referred to a sort of emotional ecstasy into which Nancy occasionally worked herself, the motive power being indifferently ghosts or religion. The kitchen was a large square room with brick floor rough shack walls and smoky rafters overhead from which pended strings of garlic, red peppers, and herbs. 
The light was supplied ostensibly by two tallow dips, but in reality by the glowing wood embers of the great open stove bricked into one side of the wall. Five or six excited negroes were grouped in a circle about a woman with a yellow turban on her head, who was rocking back and forth and shouting at intervals. Oh, there's spirits in the air. I can smell em. I can smell em. Nancy called the colonel sharply as we stepped into the room. Nancy paused a moment and turned upon us a pair of frenzied eyes with nothing much but the whites showing. Mask colonel, there's spirits in the air, she cried. Save yourself while there's time. We're all a-treadin' the road to destruction. You'll be treading the road to destruction in mighty short order if you don't keep still, he returned grimly. Now stop this foolishness and tell me what's gone with that chicken. After a great deal of questioning and patching together, we finally got her story, but I cannot say that it threw much light upon the matter. She had put the chicken in the oven, and then she felt powerful queer, as if something were going to happen. Suddenly she felt a cold wind blow through the room. The candles went out, and she could hear the rustle of ghostly garments sweeping past her. The oven door sprung open of its own accord. She looked inside, and there, want no chicken there. Repeated questioning only brought out the same statement, but with more circumstantial details. The other negroes backed her up, and the story grew rapidly in magnitude and horror. Nancy's seizures, it appeared, were contagious, and the others by this time were almost as excited as she. The only approximately calm one among them was Cat Eye Mose, who sat in the doorway watching the scene with half furtive eyes and something resembling a grin on his face. The colonel, observing that it was a good deal of commotion for the sake of one small chicken, disgustedly dropped the inquiry. As we stepped out into the gallery again, I glanced back at the dancing firelight, the weird cross shadows, and the circle of dusky faces, with, I confess, a somewhat creepy feeling. I could see that in such an atmosphere it would not take long for superstition to lay its hold on a man. "'What's the meaning of it?' I asked, as we strolled slowly toward the house. "'The meaning of it,' Radnor shrugged, "'is that some of them are lying. The hand, I could swear,' has a good flesh and blood appetite. Nancy has been frightened, and she believes her own story. There's never any use in trying to sift a negro's lies. They have so much imagination that after five minutes they believe themselves. I think I could spot the ghost, I returned, and that's your precious cat-eye Mose. Radnor shook his head. Mose doesn't need to steal chickens. He gets all he wants. Mose, the colonel added emphatically, is the one person on the place who is absolutely to be trusted. We had almost reached the house 
when we were suddenly startled by a series of shrieks and screams coming toward us across the open stretch of lawn that lay between us and the old negro cabins. In another moment an old woman, her face twitching with terror, had thrown herself at our feet in a species of convulsion. De hant, de hant, he's a beckoning, was all we could make out between her moans. The other negroes came pouring out from the kitchen and gathered in a frenzied circle about the writhing woman. Mose, I noted, was among them. He could at least prove an alibi this time. Here, Mose, quick, get us some torches, Radnor called. We'll fetch that hand up here to answer for himself. It's old Aunt Suki, he added to me, nodding toward the woman on the ground whose spasms by this time were growing somewhat quieter. She lives on the next plantation and was probably taking a cross-cut through the laurel path that leads by the cabins. She's almost a hundred and is pretty nearly a witch herself. Mose shambled up with some torches, pine knots dipped in tar, such as they used for hunting possums at night, and he and I and Radnor set out for the cabins. I noticed that none of the other negroes volunteered to assist. I also noticed that Mose went on ahead with a low whining cry, which sent chills chasing up and down my back. "'What's the matter with him?' I gasped, more intent on the negro than the ghost we had come to search. "'That's the way he always hunts,' Radnor laughed. "'There are a good many things about Mose that you will have to get used to.' We searched the whole region of the abandoned quarters with a considerable degree of thoroughness. Three or four of the larger cabins were used as storehouses for fodder. The rest were empty. We poked into all of them, but found nothing more terrifying than a few bats and owls. Though I did not give much consideration to the fact at the time, I later remembered that there was one of the cabins which we didn't explore as thoroughly as the rest. Mose dropped his torch as we entered, and in the confusion of relighting it, the interior was somewhat slighted. In any case, we unearthed no hand that night, and we finally gave up the search and turned back to the house. I suspect, Radnor laughed, that if the truth were known, old Aunt Suki's beckoning hand would turn out to be nothing more alarming than a white cow waving her tail. It's rather suggestive coming on top of the chicken episode, I observed. Oh, this won't be the end. We'll have Hant served for breakfast, dinner and supper, during the rest of your stay, when the niggers begin to see things they keep it up. When I went upstairs that night, Rad followed close on my heels to see that I had everything I needed. The room was a huge four-windowed affair, furnished with a canopied bed and a mahogany wardrobe as big as a small house. The night still being chilly, a roaring wood fire had been built, adding a note of cheerfulness to an otherwise sombre apartment. This was Nan's room, 
he said suddenly. Nan's room? I echoed, glancing about the shadowy interior, rather heavy for a girl. It is a trifle severe, he agreed, but I dare say it was different when she was here. Her things are all packed away in the attic. He picked up a candle and held it so that it lighted the face of a portrait over the mantel. That's Nan, painted when she was eighteen. Yes, I nodded. I recognized her the moment I saw it. She was like that when I knew her. It used to hang downstairs, but after her marriage my father had it brought up here. He kept the door locked until the news came that she was dead. Then he turned it into a guest room. He never comes in himself. He won't look at the picture. Radnor spoke shortly, but with an underlying note of bitterness. I could see that he felt keenly on the subject. After a few desultory words, he somewhat brusquely said good-night, and left me to the memories of the place. Instead of going to bed, I set about unpacking. I was tired but wide awake. Aunt Suki's convulsions and our torchlight hunt for ghosts were novel events in my experience, and they acted as anything but a sedative. The unpacking finished, I settled myself in an easy chair before the fire and fell to studying the portrait. It was a huge canvas in the romantic fashion of Romney, with a landscape in the background. The girl was dressed in flowing pink drapery, a garden hat filled with roses swinging from her arm, a Scotch collie with great lustrous eyes pressed against her side. The pose, the attributes, were artificial, but the painter had caught the spirit. Nanny's face looked out of the frame as I remembered it from long ago. Youth and gaiety and goodness trembled on her lips and laughed in her eyes. The picture seemed a prophecy of all the happiness the future was to bring. Nanny at eighteen, with life before her. And three years later she was dying in a dreary little western town, separated from her girlhood friends, without a word of forgiveness from her father. What had she done to deserve this fate? Merely set up her will against his, and married the man she loved. Her husband was poor, but from all I ever heard, a very decent chap. As I studied the eager smiling face, I felt a hot wave of anger against her father. What a power of vindictiveness the man must have, still to cherish rancor against a daughter fifteen years in her grave. There was something too poignantly sad about the unfilled hope of the picture. I blew out the candles to rid my mind of poor little Nanny's smile. I sat for some time, my eyes fixed moodily on the glowing embers, till I was roused by the deep boom of the hall clock as it slowly counted twelve. I rose with a laugh and a yawn. The first of the doctor's orders had been, early to bed. I hastily made ready, but before turning in, paused for a moment by the open window, 
enticed by the fresh country smells of ploughed land and sprouting green things that blew in on the damp breeze. It was a wild night with the young moon hanging low in the sky. Shadows chased themselves over the lawn and the trees waved and shifted in the wind. It had been a long time since I had looked out on such a scene of peaceful tranquillity as this. New York, with the hurry and rush of its streets, with the horrors of Terry's morgue, seemed to lie in another continent. But suddenly I was recalled to the present by hearing, almost beneath me, the low shuddering squeak of an opening window. I leaned out silently alert, and to my surprise I saw Cat-Eye Mose. Though it was pretty dark, I could not be mistaken in his long, loping run, slink out from the shadow of the house, and make across the open space of lawn toward the deserted negro cabins. As he ran, he was bent almost double over a large black bundle which he carried in his arms. Though I strained my eyes to follow him, I could make out nothing more before he had plunged into the shadow of the laurels. End of chapter 3